This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Holden, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm a bit excited to talk to you today. I read your memoir. Was it back in 2005, In My Skin? Yes, yes, many years ago, my first book, In My Skin. Yeah. Um, the memoir I wrote uh, mm. about when I was you know, a heroin user and a sex worker in Melbourne in my youth. Mm. Um, and I wrote it for text publishing. Uh, and it came out, yes, uh, 16 years ago. Oh, God, was it then? Because <laughs> I think I read it in manuscript. Wow. Well, um, I'm very glad to hear that. I didn't have a clue what I was doing when I wrote that book. It was my first book. I was a writing student. I was at RMIT in Melbourne finishing off a grad dip in professional writing at their fantastic program. And I just it, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I got started in that program and then I became uh, a published writer and a professional writer and I've been doing it ever since. Mm. Okay, we'll talk about that. Let me introduce you. Well, I was just going to say Kate is a Melbourne-based writer, but you've just moved to New South Wales. Uh, she's gained critical acclaim through her memoir that we just spoke about, In My Skin, and its follow-up, The Romantic, Italian Nights and Days, which delved into her experiences as a heroin addict and sex worker. She since became a regular columnist for The Age and The Saturday Paper and completed a Master's of Creative Writing at RMIT University, where she also taught creative writing. So this is a completely different book. It's called The Winter Road. It investigates a true crime case which shocked Australia in 2014, the killing of environmental officer Glenn Turner by an enraged farmer. Kate explores the intrigue, power and greed which led to this devastating killing. I remember that so vividly, trying to wrap my head around what the hell happened that day. Mm. It's a really shocking little moment and it has stayed with a lot of people. Wherever I've gone and mentioned what I'm writing, people go, oh, well, I remember that. And a surprising number of people have a connection with that area Um, or, you know, I think they're interested in environmental issues and the murder of an environmental officer over a land clearing situation was really a very big shock that kind of thing doesn't happen in this country well and also too it just felt to it was just in cold blood like and my memory of it and this is not true since reading your book I've realized that this wasn't true but I thought the environmental worker came onto his property Uh but that wasn't true he went looking for him yes he did so environmental officer Glenn Turner was two years um, since the previous part of his investigations into Ian Turnbull, who was a farmer uh, and member of a a family um, up in the northwest of New South Wales. And the Turnbull family had bought a couple of blocks. And these um, properties out there in the, you know, in the agricultural country, it's the Golden Triangle, it's some of the richest agricultural land in the country. Uh, a lot of it had already been cleared and converted from grazing um, into cropping country. There were these two blocks left 
And the Turnbulls had their eye on them. It was in their neighbourhood. But everyone knew that you couldn't convert those because they were covered in endangered species, including koalas and brigolo, which is um, an endangered tree. And the Turnbulls bought them and started doing what they had already done, which was conversion, changing from grazing to cropping. Glenn Turner was put on the case of investigating what was happening because it seemed very apparent that they were clearing endangered species against the law. So it was his job. That it was, was his job. He was yeah. yeah, he was a job. So he worked for the Office of Environment and Heritage up in here in New South Wales, um, covering lots of different similar jobs. You know, it was going to be just a routine job. And uh, as time went on, the the Turnbulls uh, continued to clear and Glenn Turner continued to investigate. There was kind of a political overlay to the situation. It all kind of got very dramatic. The Turnbulls were um, each of them charged and convicted of illegal land clearing. Glenn Turner was um, put off the case after Ian Turnbull threatened his life, but was still kind of keeping an eye on things. But they hadn't spoken to each other or seen each other really for two years when Glenn was in the area again on a completely unrelated investigation went past the Turnbull properties, saw that they were still clearing. They'd literally just lit fires to burn some of the fallen timber of these endangered species. So there were literally great big beacons, flaming beacons, on a twilight winter afternoon up there in the northwest in the winter. And um, so Glenn and his colleagues stopped the car. One of the Turnbull's employees saw them, went back to the Turnbull farm and told Ian Turnbull that he'd seen Glenn Turner and another officer, Turnbull, got in his car, drove down, stopped the car, took out his rifle, drove on, found the men and then spent 20 to 40 minutes cold-bloodedly stalking them and shooting Glenn Turner dead. And it wasn't just one shot. He just kept going for him, right? He did. He circled him. They, he has a kind of cat and mouse thing. The, they ended up... Two men ended up sheltering behind the car and one of them, the the other colleague, he'd actually been a police officer but he was unarmed, of course, because he was now in compliance and he was begging Turnbull, just please put the gun down. He, A shot was fired straight away which hit Glenn Turner um, and wounded him badly. And then even having had that, um, that moment of, you know, which would surely shock you out of whatever you're doing. And this other man begging and begging and begging him to just leave them in peace and saying, Glenn's got a family, please, we're just doing our job. Um, Please put the gun down. Turnbull continued, um, shot, um, I think, five shots, six shots, um, three of which hit Glenn Turner. And the last one was um, as Glenn ran for his life to the bushes and um, Turnbull shot him in the back, a fatal shot. And then literally lowered his gun, said to the other man, you can call the police now, I'm going home, and drove off into the twilight, leaving the poor Robert Strange extremely traumatised and alone with a dying man, bleeding out in the dark with no phone signal. They're in the absolute middle of nowhere in the rural <laughs> New South Wales. No one on their way to help. No one knew what had happened. They couldn't get a signal to the EPIRB or to anything like that. Um, and Robert Strange was trying to talk to Glenn and do whatever first aid he could possibly do. It was pointless. The man was dying. Um, And then a car came along. Robert Strange said he thought it was Turnbull coming back to finish him off, so he just walked out into the dark of the road, closed his eyes and put his hands up thinking, whatever happens, you know, I don't want to see it. Luckily it wasn't Turnbull. Turnbull had gone home and it was another farmhand from the local area who stopped and started offering assistance. Mm. 
I want to go back because it really is very different to what you'd been writing. Um, So what was the trigger for you to write nonfiction? Because in the past they were memoir-like. Well, they were nonfiction. They were were memoirs, true story. Yeah, that's right. But this is not your story. No, I don't appear in this story at all. And that was actually quite nice. I've done a lot of work on memoir for, for years now and I teach memoir and I do memoir workshops and mentoring and I still, you know, engage in the discussions around memoir writing. And I really find it fascinating, but it's a relief to put myself out of the picture. Uh, I wasn't, you know, sure I could pull this book off, to be honest, Cheryl, because I've never done anything like this. I was actually approached by my publisher, Black Ink, and I've been working for um, their stable mate, The Saturday Paper. And they said, look, we think you're good at talking to people. Maybe you would be the good person to, to, to approach this really quite difficult story. It's a painful story and people will find it difficult to talk, but we know that you, you're quite good at, you know, making a building rapport and interviewing. And I, I think they had in mind something like The Tall Man, which would be very focused on... I that. mean, I thought of Chloe Hooper instead. Yeah. The minute I put the book up, I thought Chloe Hooper. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Maybe I did better get close to it. I'm not sure that's... Do you know quite- Chloe? Yes, I do. And her book is so wonderful. I mean, it's it's a Mm. masterful piece of of writing. But Chloe had the advantage that she went to the community itself. She spent a lot of time there. And though not everyone would speak to her, it was also a very painful situation. But she got a lot of interviews with people on the ground, on the scene. And she was even there as a witness to a lot of subsequent events. And she was on on the scene very soon after the inciting incident. Whereas I came to this case what, three years after the murder trial, which itself was, well, you know, like I was I was really late and not only Glenn Turner had died, but in fact Ian Turnbull himself had died, an old man in prison in the meantime. So, oh, right. so neither of the main protagonists was around and their families are very upset, understandably, and just blanket said, no, we're not talking straight up. And both families? Both families. And I, approached, I was very nervous as well about approaching them and raising all these, you know, very difficult subjects. So I really had to reconstruct this from afar. Living in in Melbourne, I did go up to Moree and I spoke to people, but I had to do it really from a distance and piecing together this story from a million different documentary sources. So I looked at media reports, I got court archives, I went through legislation, you know, troves. I did all of this research, a huge amount of research, and really just had to put everything together bit by bit by bit by bit. So the... The story is not so much a story of characters in the same way as The Tall Man, but what it is is it's a real story of Australia. I realised that working back from these two characters who had this encounter on the road is a huge landscape of cultural and historical and philosophical um, kind of um, context and I almost came to think of it as as a classic tragedy, Cheryl, in the sense that the two characters, the man with the gun and the man at the end of the gun, are not really um, the significant part of the story. It didn't really matter who they were as such. Glenn Turner's private life, you know, should remain his private life. He, being a victim didn't mean he'd signed up to be intruded upon. And Ian Turnbull's personal life, there's just not that much information about it. But I realised that didn't really matter because what mattered was what had pressed those two men into these positions and created those two characters with those positions and why they were now in conflict, which would become a, a fatal conflict, literally. So were, were there any anybody of Ian Turnbull's family that ever spoke to you? Very late in the day. So I wrote them several letters. Eventually one of the 
one of the people, Ian Turnbull's son, Grant Turnbull, his father-in-law contacted me and he'd also been doing a lot of thinking about what had happened and he'd, he'd been trying to open up some inquiries and he'd had put some documentation together and actually been through some of the same source material that I had. And he contacted me with the Turnbull family perspective and I've included that in the book, even though he makes allegations, which I can't speak to the truth of them, but they were certainly not dis- that they certainly were not accepted by the court in the murder trial of Ian Turnbull. But so he had made contact. The other first members of the family really preferred to stay out of it. Mm. And actually with Glenn Turner's family, um, again, late in the day, both his widow and his sister agreed to read parts of the manuscript for me and, you know, give me their feelings about it. So that was really helpful and a huge relief to me because. Did you start off? Because, you know, I mean, and this is why I'm not a writer. But I form an opinion very quickly and I get the shits very quickly and (laughs) a man to be shot in cold blood, fearing for his life and over a 20, 40-minute period, which for some reason seems infinitely worse to me than dying straight away because it's, you know, the fear and it must have been awful. Straight away, I'm going for the kill on Ian Turnbull as a person, saying cold-blooded murder. But I'm just wondering, were you kind of there and that changed as you were writing? I mean, tell me how that, because I often wonder when people are writing about other people, particularly people that aren't alive, is are you on their side or you're not on, you know, do you end up liking them or not liking them? Talk to me about that. Well, um, yes, as a writer, of course, I was hoping there'd be really interesting complexities and nuances and shades of grey and conundrums and paradoxes. What I found, I don't know, perhaps this plays into the kind of the classic fable side of it, but in fact, it seemed like Len Turner was a lovely guy. You know, he he was he wasn't a, um, a super greenie, but he was replanting vegetation on his property, own property. And he, you know, he liked nature and he liked everything. He also believed in his job, so his job was to make sure that the very small minority of farmers who don't do the right thing, but that they would be stopped from you know um, damaging nature. He was just a fairly nice guy. Jobs that. That's what you do. You look out, you know, you check the people who are doing the right thing. Well, he was a bit like a traffic infringement officer. Like exactly. he, was, yeah. he was trained. He'd actually been um, an engineer. He wasn't right. He wasn't in there as an environmental activist. He was He yeah. was just a man doing his job. And Turnbull, I've got to be careful what I say, but the, the people in his community claim that he was very beloved and that he did a lot of charity work, was very modest and, you know, helped out around his little neighbourhood a lot. Other people have different opinions about him and they say he was aggressive, uh, a bully, um, that he was, you know, a real old-fashioned patriarch, mm. that he kept very strict controls on, on members of his family and um, certainly his actions in relation to the land clearing were quite uh, aggressive. Mm. But the only thing I found was that he, he'd actually been a conservation farmer, which means that he'd been involved in promoting quite like less damaging agricultural practices. So that was interesting. He wasn't a stupid man and he wasn't um, blind to the consequences of land clearing and so on or, um, you know, industrial farming. But when it came to that, those properties and the chance to really establish his family, his son and his grandson on those blocks and just make that much cash, conservation farming may or may not have come into it, but the first thing he had to do was get rid of all the endangered bush on those blocks. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you think it was more about money or was it more about maintaining the family honour? Well, that's such a good question. I think a bit of both, really. He had that maybe characteristic um, attitude of the, you know, the kind of the remoter rural areas, which is... He's not actually a member of the squatocracy, but that that attitude about where the pioneers were almost like a separate caste. The normal laws don't apply to us. We are kind of the grandees of the local community. I think he had that sense of irritation at being told what to do by a government official. And in the book, I trace through that attitude and the kind of the, the, the tension that's been there for, you know, 200 years between government officials and land developers. And he did have a strong sense of family and building a family unit. One of the, one of the kind of the most delicious parts of this story to me as a writer is that the, the building of his legacy, as he saw it, actually turned it out to be a story of consequences, one of which was that his family turned against each other. His two sons, two of his four sons, have had um, developed a terrible feud um, and indeed have been come, like, put to the point where they would destroy each other's property, destroy each other's crops and so on. It's kind of biblical falling out between the, the sons of the father and there's this sense all the way through the Turnbull story of, of hubris, you know, that he had a, a kind of a concept that he was going to get away with something and he was just going to push through, really resolved and um, urgent sense of mission. He was at the end of his life, he felt very strongly that time was running out and he needed to get done what he had to do and that nothing was going to stand in his way of getting his family sorted and getting them set. Unfortunately, it took you a can, life. Yeah, yeah. You, you can see that. I can see, I can recognise that in, in some families. Really, you know, when it comes to murder, that is always, that's what's meant yeah. to separate us from animals, right? You know, yeah. if he's yeah. a reasonably intelligent man, what pushed him over the line to that? Well, what pushed him, the, the, the verb push is the, is the kind of thing here because the Turnbull's almost immediately started putting out a message that he'd been like the classic push too far by the regulation, by the green tape, by the, you know, hassling of this in particular officer and so on. So the, the fact that you thought that Glenn Turner had been on in Turnbull's property is because the Turnbulls or people connected to them appear to have spread a message that Glenn Turner was either trespassing, as the Turnbulls claimed, or that he was yet again on his way to harass the Turnbulls. It, it really is what I thought. I thought yeah. he was trespassing, yeah. No, so he was actually, he did stop to look at this property. He had the compliance, his mm. colleague had would stop to take photographs because they'd just pass and see these flaming beacons of trees being set alight that should have been mm. standing up and growing. 
he, you know, the Turnbulls kind of made this into a, it was Glenn Turner's own fault Mm. story, which was obviously extremely offensive to Glenn Turner's family. Oh, so distressing. Um, And the idea that you could kind of justify a murder. So Ian Turnbull pleaded guilty to manslaughter, saying that he had, um, what do they call it, not diminished responsibility but the new term, and that Glenn Turner had pushed him to a state of kind of depressed um, mental disorder that meant that he went and killed him as in a reactive kind of brain snap moment. That, they use that, some men use that in domestic violence. Yes, like see what you made me do, Jess Hill's book, mm. exactly. Like, and they, they maintain that, that argument to this day. Mm. But the evidence given by Robert Strange, the witness, a direct witness and a former police officer and other kind of parts of the circumstantial evidence say that, no, Ian Turnbull was in a sound mind he had um, motives and he seemed to know what he was doing. He did not speak in a kind of affectless way. He seemed resolved. He took his time killing Glenn Turner. And then he had time the, then to think about it. He did. And he went home. He did not call medical assistance to help the man he'd just shot. He left alone in the dark, dying, terrifying, and then expressed almost no remorse. So it appears that, look, it's possible. I can't make this statement for sure, but it appears that he would have actually thought he had a good chance of getting the department to back off his land clearing issues if he from killing Glenn Turner because certainly the department went into a state of shock. I mean, they, they were just going out there to do their, their job and one of them had actually been just shot dead. as a So they froze all the investigations immediately, federally and state, in both environment departments and those officers didn't want to go out there to prosecute or investigate anymore of these things, and there was um, a small suggestion that they should just drop everything to do with the Turnbulls. He was obviously, they said, obviously mad, but one of the people who'd worked with Glenn Turner said, I don't think so. He didn't seem mad to me, but imagine what happens if you let him off. Mm. Do we know how he was? How much? How many years did he spend in jail before he died? Oh, well, he was arrested immediately the night of the murder in July 2014, and he died, when was it, 2017? So he served a bit. He was sentenced to 35 years. Right. And, and he'd served some of that, but he, he died, you know, within a couple of years. Do we know anything about his behaviour in jail? Quiet, I think. I think yeah. very quiet. Just, I mean, he was, he was in poor health by that stage. Right. He, um, yeah, he was mounting an appeal, though, preparing to mount an appeal to the right. So he wasn't going down fighting. He also spoke on phone recordings to his family members where he certainly sounded defiant, definitely trying to prepare things for an appeal, for arguments about it, trying to organise his family's financial affairs, controlling that from jail. Mm. They sold, He ended up selling all his properties to his wife for a dollar each so that mm. they would not be available mm-hmm. um, and so on. Yeah, he was... I guess he'd done his job, really, but he was, he was unable, to, it seems, to think that he'd really done anything wrong. Mm. Uh, one of the themes that people have talked about in relation to the book is the that it's a story, you know, about Australia and about the Australian landscape and about land ownership. Talk mm. to me about that. Well, I, I just felt that there was a reason why a man like Ian Turnbull would stand in the middle of a road with a gun at his shoulder protecting, as he saw it, his rights and his privileges over land. Um, He said, you know, you come here and tell me what to do. And I thought, where does that come from? And obviously the history of settlement and invasion of those northwest um, districts is a really violent one. 
um, starting in the 1830s when um, a bushranger, well, there's some kind of bushranger convict, you know, escaped up that way um, and did a bit of cattle rustling and so on. Um, and then led settlers in there who then promptly um, massacred most of the First Nations people who actually did live there, got rid of them, and there were really vicious frontier war incidents there. There were several massacre sites just very close to the to where Glen Turner was killed. And that that attitude of I take it, you know, I'll take it, and I've got a gun to prove that it's mine. You wouldn't think that that was now still current in Australia in the 21st century, but I felt that that was present in Ian Turnbull's stance and you know then I looked further back why was you know what how how did this settlement attitude get in there and I looked into terra nullius and the idea that that was brought that Australia was vacant and available for the taking and of course that also involved a lot of violence and then even why was Europe so keen to do this and and what was land and so of course in Europe at the time of um, Australian settlement you had to have land to have a vote you have to have land to have any rights or privileges. If you didn't have land, you were nothing. And so for anyone, convicts, um, free convicts or um, free settlers, they could come from a land where they had nothing and come here and take land and be, be a big man, you know. Mm. And that's really been happening ever since. So there was this huge land grab up in the northwest of New South Wales where people just rocketed in and then there was a lot of toing and froing about the law and then there was, you know, selections and soldier settlement blocks and all that kind of thing. But uh, the idea that you get your land and that's yours I think is really strong and even in our little back gardens, you know, in the suburbs, you don't expect anyone to come in and tell you what to do. Oh, I, I see neighbours fight over, you know, 10 centimetres of fencing. Aren't they the worst? So, you know, we, we've got all of that in the background as well. And then I thought, but also at the same time as all of that um, enlightenment kind of uh, larceny of an entire continent, we also have um, enlightenment science and responsiveness and the romantic attitude to nature, which was around in the early 19th century. And people who came to love wild landscapes and uh, take a, a, a less kind of grandiose attitude to human you know, place in landscape. So I also then went back and traced how you end up with such a thing as environmental compliance officer, which is a very new phenomenon. Indeed, it's so new that if um, Glenn Turner had been environmental compliance officer when Ian Turnbull was a child in the 30s, he'd have been telling the Turnbulls to poison more wallabies, put up more fences, chop down more trees. And in Ian Turnbull's lifetime, that flipped over completely. And now we have a government which both encourages development and tries to protect against it. So I went into the long and turned out fascinating histories of these two different elements and how they play with each other and off each other. And I think underneath all of this is just that Australia is a contested land, you know. There's deep trauma, guilt, evasiveness, repression about what's happened here altogether. Mm. Um, and the, the, the presence of First Nations history in my book you know, it's not the main element, but it's definitely there as a haunting. Oh, it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah it's absolutely fundamental. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today. I mean, we could talk on forever, but really interesting book. It's, I've got to say, it, it was very compelling and unputdownable, an amazing story that you told in a very, very interesting way. You're a great 
nonfiction writer. You really are. (laughs) So I hope you're going to keep going. Thanks. Yes, I'm having a bit of a rest now. It's been a lot of work, but I'm thinking about the next project already. Yeah, clear your head a little bit and then get started, right? Yeah, yeah. well, that's right. The more I talk through this one, maybe I'll find the next next thread I'm interested in. For sure. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.